Welcome to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended as a training tool for Children's Hospital and Medical Center personnel. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Complete information regarding the podcast, including its limitations on usage, is available under the episode description. Welcome to Healing Hearts. I'm Dr. Laura Ortman, and I'm an intensivist at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. Today I'm going to be discussing one of our more interesting heart lesions, transposition of the great arteries. I'll talk about what it is, what these patients look like, and what their postoperative course in the ICU might look like so we can be prepared. So let's get started, but first, a quick warning. Transposition of the great arteries is often abbreviated with the letters TGA. You sometimes hear the abbreviation DTGA. That D stands for dextro and refers to the direction of folding of the heart during fetal development. This differentiates this lesion from LTGA, or levotransposition. That is a completely different heart disease that is rare and weird, and I'm not going to talk about that today. I'll do an episode on LTGA when I run out of more common heart lesions. This episode only refers to DTGA, which I'll be calling transposition from here on out. Transposition makes up about 5% of congenital heart defects. In transposition, the great arteries, meaning the pulmonary artery and the aorta, are switched. So, blue blood coming back to the right heart from the body exits the aorta instead of the pulmonary artery. That blue blood then goes out to the body and returns to the right heart still blue. Red blood comes back to the left heart from the lungs, but exits out the pulmonary artery and returns back to the lungs. Obviously, this setup isn't compatible with life, as the blue blood would never be oxygenated. That's why all babies with transposition have to have some place for the blue and red blood to cross to the other side. That means an open ductus arteriosus, a PDA, or some type of ASD. Ventricular septal defects, VSDs, are common, occurring in about 40% of transposition patients, and are another place the blood can mix. Shunting through the PDA and ASD is generally adequate for fetal survival. It's not until after birth there is a risk of inadequate mixing and severe cyanosis. Now, prenatal diagnosis of transposition is still poor, especially compared to the improvement we have seen in the diagnosis of other heart lesions. In transposition, there are four heart chambers and two great vessels coming off those chambers, so it is still missed in about 50% of prenatal ultrasounds. So what if our patient is born without a prenatal diagnosis? What's going to happen? It will depend on how much mixing there is between the left and right sides of the circulation. The PDA will likely stay open for a while, so that is one place for mixing. But the blood needs to go left to right and right to left, and a PDA by itself isn't going to be enough, especially when the pulmonary resistance drops after birth and the blood is primarily going to want to go one way. If the patient is one of the 40% that has a VSD, that is another level of mixing. The patient will be cyanotic with saturations likely in the 70s or 80s, but they will be stable. If there is no VSD or ASD, even with the PDA wide open, the baby can be in trouble. The PDA alone does not allow for adequate mixing of blue and red blood, and there will be deep cyanosis. These are patients that need to go to the catheterization lab for emergent atrial septostomy to create an ASD and they are at risk for ending up on ECMO. If there is adequate mixing, the baby will be blue, but otherwise look pretty good. They usually don't have a murmur, 
and don't have significant respiratory distress. But even if they look great hanging out in the NICU, we don't want to wait too long for surgery. That's because these patients are at high risk for developing irreversible pulmonary hypertension. Despite being blue, they have increased pulmonary blood flow. This flow is at a higher pressure than normal because it is coming from the stronger left ventricle. And the patient is cyanotic. This combination, high flow, high pressure, and cyanosis, means a baby with transposition will develop pulmonary hypertension sooner than any other lesion we have discussed in this podcast so far. Changes in the pulmonary arteries can be seen as soon as two weeks of life. So these babies are taken for repair within the first week or two if possible. These days, the arterial switch is a procedure of choice to repair transposition, but this surgery was not common until the 1980s. Prior to that, we had the mustard and sending procedures that were developed in the late 1950s and early 60s. These are similar surgeries where baffles are created through the atria. So blue blood returns to the right atrium and is baffled across the ASD to the left atrium. There, it crosses into the left ventricle and goes out the pulmonary artery to the lungs to be oxygenated. It returns to the left atria red, is baffled across to the right atria, and then goes through the right ventricle out the aorta. While the mustard and sinning are not done for transposition in the U.S. often, they are still important to know about. Those procedures are still sometimes done for more complicated heart lesions, like LTGA. And there are adults out there still alive that had these done as children. The mustard and sending are also still sometimes done in developing countries where the outcomes for arterial switches are not as good. But our patient is going to get an arterial switch in the first week of life, so let's talk about that. An arterial switch is exactly what it sounds like. The aorta and the pulmonary arteries are transected above their valves and reattached to the correct ventricle. Critical to this is the relocating of the coronary arteries. The coronary arteries follow the aortic valve and fetal development, so they will be above the right ventricle in a patient with transposition. The arteries are switched above the level of the coronaries, so the coronaries also need to be removed from the right ventricle and placed above the left ventricle, which is now attached to the aorta. That the coronaries were moved is important to remember when I get to possible post-operative complications. Also, the ASD will be closed along with the VSD if there is one. So now we're in the ICU, taking this patient back from the OR after their arterial switch. Let's talk about low cardiac output syndrome, arrhythmias, and pulmonary hypertension. First, low cardiac output syndrome. This is an inflammatory state that starts several hours after bypass, where we see tachycardia, myocardial dysfunction, and signs of inadequate perfusion, such as acidosis. Even uncomplicated transposition repairs will involve a long bypass run in a very small baby. So the risk of low cardiac output syndrome is at least 20%. Transpositions usually come out of the OR with a Miller-Known infusion to help with this. If your patient has the arterial switch done more than a couple weeks after birth, they are at even greater risk for myocardial dysfunction. While we aim to take these patients to surgery quickly, sometimes that's not possible or safe. Maybe the baby was born early and very small. Maybe they had neonatal sepsis. There are many reasons why we might have to wait longer than we want for surgery. During that time, the left ventricle has been pumping to the lower pressure lungs. The LV becomes deconditioned. It becomes weak. After surgery is now pumping against higher systemic blood pressure, and it is at risk for failure. So the older your patient is at the time of surgery, the more likely they are going to run into trouble with the weak left ventricle 
and need increased inotropic support. So what if our patient is really struggling right after the switch? What if we were giving multiple fluid boluses and have turned up the epinephrine drip and they are still doing poorly? We have to think about those relocated coronary arteries. During the surgery and the chest closure, those arteries can become stretched and kinked. If a patient is doing poorly the first night after the switch, we must consider whether one of the coronaries is blocked. We may be able to see changes in the ECG similar to when an adult has a heart attack. An echocardiogram can be done, but may not be able to see the coronaries well and should never be fully trusted in these situations. If we see ECG changes suggesting ischemia, the patient needs to go back to the OR as soon as possible to prevent permanent damage to the heart muscle. Even if the ECG and echo look okay, if the patient is doing poorly, we really should consider taking the patient to the cath lab to be sure. Next complication we need to think about is arrhythmias. As I have discussed in previous episodes, junctional ectopic tachycardia, JET, is the most common post-op arrhythmia in the ICU. Risk factors include VSD closure, young age, and long bypass runs. Well, if your patient had a transposition with a VSD, they are going to have all three of those risk factors. This patient is going to be at high risk. Somewhat surprisingly, even without a VSD repair, with nothing being done inside the heart, these patients are still at higher risk. This is likely due to the fact that they are getting a big surgery in only a few days of life. So, watch the temperature closely so they don't develop a fever and be on the lookout for tachycardia. You can review our previous episode on JET for further information. Now, let's talk about postoperative pulmonary hypertension, which I've already stated can be a potential problem. If your patient has had the repair in the first few weeks of life, the chances of pulmonary hypertension causing you problems is probably not too much higher than any other neonate you will take care of. As they get older, however, the risk increases. When the patient is older than a month and definitely older than two months of age, I start to get nervous. This is a patient that will require higher FiO2 and maybe even nitric oxide the first postoperative night. And remember, just because the saturations are within your goals doesn't mean the pulmonary artery pressures are normal. A patient can have significant pulmonary hypertension, but not desaturate if they don't have a place for blue blood to get to the left side of the heart, such as a residual ASD. In these cases, pulmonary hypertension could look a lot like low cardiac output because the right heart is struggling to get blood through the lungs. What you will see is tachycardia, low blood pressure, and maybe an enlarged liver. If you have concerns, get an echocardiogram. And speaking of saturations, the goal saturations for this patient after surgery should be in the 90s. For some reason, patients with transposition generally need supplemental oxygen for a long time, even if they are otherwise doing well. I've never heard a great explanation for this, but these patients usually leave the ICU on nasal cannula O2, even if it's just a whiff. And that's what you need to know about detransposition of the great arteries. Of course, as with any of our complicated heart defects, there's a lot of variety that can make this episode irrelevant for your patient. Differences in coronary anatomy or outflow tract obstruction can cause your patient to take a completely different path. Never be afraid to ask your surgeon, cardiologist, or intensivist for clarification of your patient's heart defect and what they had done. For more information about Children's Hospital and Medical Center, visit childrensomaha.org. Thanks for listening to Healing Hearts, empowering critical care providers.